Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? I trusted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior when I was eight. What is God showing you in your personal Bible reading and prayer time right now? What that verse means to me is, I love Jesus, but I'm done with the church. We just can't find a church that meets the needs of everyone in our family. I'm going to watch the service online today. The worship there just doesn't move me. My life verse is, the Bible is God's love letter to you. God has an amazing purpose and plan for your life. It doesn't matter what everyone else thinks. What is God calling you to do? If you are an American and a follower of Jesus, there's a good chance that most, if not all of these statements sound somewhat familiar. That's because America is a culture that prizes individualism. Our identity comes from distinguishing ourselves from others. We're encouraged to be suspicious of the people around us, to avoid peer pressure, to think for ourselves and to be true to ourselves. Personal choice is to be protected at all costs. The supreme value in individualist cultures like ours is the sovereignty of each person, reflected in pithy slogans like, you do you, and believe in yourself. Or in the wise words of Taylor Swift, haters gonna hate, 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 hate. Baby, I'm just gonna shake, 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 shake. Shake it off. This American individualism is so baked into our way of thinking and being in the world that we assume it's the way everyone in the world thinks or should think. Here's a little test to prove it. What are your feelings about arranged marriage? If you're like me, the very thought of it makes you cringe. Having little to no say and choosing the person you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with, have sex with, raise children with, seems so oppressive and restrictive dangerous even. But in collectivist cultures, where the community is way more important than the individual, arranged marriage is seen as a means of provision and protection. In these cultures, the idea of a young person making such a big decision on their own is unthinkable. Talk about dangerous. To people in collectivist cultures, marriage isn't just the union of two people. It's the union of two families. So it goes without saying that the community should play matchmaker. They would see our way of doing things as oppressive and cringeworthy. In their book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien expose how our American individualism impacts our interpretation of the Bible with some fascinating examples. They start with the Christmas story. Pretty much the entire Christmas story has been westernized, a product of Victorian English customs and practices. We assume that Joseph took his very pregnant wife to Bethlehem when he did because he had no other option. In reality, Joseph had a wide window of time to travel to Bethlehem for the census. 
He most likely went when he did because he was a regular attender of Judean festivals. I'm quoting from the book here. But why take Mary when she was great with child? It wasn't ignorance. Ancients knew how to count to nine. The reason is simple. If Joseph was in the lineage of David, then so were all his relatives. So were all Mary's relatives. Moreover, in antiquity, one's relatives were the birthing crew. Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem when they did because everybody else was going. We imagine Joseph and Mary trudging alone up to Jerusalem in the quiet of the night. Nope. They were part of two large clans, his and hers. The birth of Jesus was no solitary event witnessed only by the doting parents in the quiet of a cattle fold. It was likely a noisy, bustling event attended by grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins. End quote. When we oppose our Western individualist birthing room preferences onto the narrative, we distort the story. Another example Richards and O'Brien give is how we as individualists view the composition and transmission of scripture. We assume that each biblical author sat alone at a desk and privately wrote what we now call the Bible. We also assume that the original audience read scripture like we do, privately, during their daily quiet time. But neither of those assumptions are correct. Here's some insights from Richards and O'Brien. Paul would not have locked himself away in some private room to write. It would have been too dark anyway. More likely, he would have sat in a public place, the breezy, well-lit atrium of a prosperous home like Lydia's, or an upstairs balcony department. But posture and place aren't the only differences from what we assume it was like. Not only did Paul write in a public area, he also wrote with assistance. Six of Paul's letters indicate that they were written with a co-author, yet we traditionally ignore the other authors. If we notice the co-author in the letter's greetings at all, such as Sothenes in 1 Corinthians and Timothy in 2 Corinthians, we're likely to assume that they were passive participants. Surely Paul is the creator and theological genius behind the letters, we think, the single, solitary, individual source of the letter's content. This is doubtful. Scholars often point out that some of the letters attributed to Paul don't sound like Paul. They don't reflect his typical writing style. But if Paul regularly worked with co-authors and secretaries, if they actively contributed content in terms of phrase, then this might explain why Paul's letters have variations in style. They bear the marks of his partners. The Spirit's inspiration covered the entire process. Not only was Scripture not written privately— but it was not read by the original audience privately either. In fact, given low literacy rates in the absence of modern printing technology, it was not read by most early Christians at all. Theirs was an experience of hearing scripture read aloud, which was a central part of their worship gatherings. What a lot of us don't realize is that throughout most of church history, engagement with the Bible has been an exclusively corporate experience. This means that bedroom Bible study is a relatively new concept. Heck, owning your own copy of the Bible is a relatively new concept. The authors of Scripture would be utterly shocked by the idea of us reading their words all by ourselves in isolation from our faith community. They would be even more flabbergasted by our obsession with personal application, how this passage relates to me and my life. I'm not saying that private engagement with the Bible is wrong. Of course it's not. But we need to be aware that prioritizing it a 
above the collective experience of reading and studying the Bible in a local church community is a purely Western idea. There's no Bible verse that says we should wake up early and read our Bibles privately because for most of human history, that hasn't been an option. Perhaps it feels so necessary today because there's so little scripture read aloud in most contemporary worship gatherings. If you don't get it on your own, you probably won't get it at all. Another example of how our individualist assumptions color our reading of the Bible relates to how we view salvation. For Western Christians, salvation is a purely individual decision, which is why we commonly refer to our personal relationship with Jesus. Richards and O'Brien point to the popular hymn, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, as an illustration of our individualist impulse. Not only does the very first stanza highlight the individual nature of salvation, I have decided to follow Jesus, there's a later verse that takes it to the next level. Though none go with me, still I will follow. For us, the personal nature of our relationship with Jesus goes without being said. But for Christians in collectivist cultures, this is not the case. In collectivist societies, conversion is not strictly an individual decision, so it's often not an individual experience. This may seem strange and even unbiblical to Western Christians, but in non-Western cultures, group conversions, when like whole families or tribes come to faith at once, are not uncommon. It's important to have this in mind when reading passages like Acts 16, where the salvation of the whole household is mentioned multiple times. Every time I've read that passage, I have assumed household is only referring to older children and adults because babies and very young children can't consent to being baptized. But the whole household was probably the whole household because the culture reflected in Acts 16 was not a culture that prized a personal decision for Jesus the same way we do. Throughout church history, baptism hasn't always been the public profession of an individual's decision to follow Jesus that it is in many denominations today. Rather, it's been the entry point for a baby into the covenant community that will help form their Christian identity and nurture them in the faith. Again, I'm not saying that it's wrong to think in terms of personal salvation, nor am I establishing a preference for one view of baptism over another. I'm saying we need to be aware that other cultures think differently about this, including the culture reflected in the Bible. The most significant example of how our individualist mindset impacts our reading of Scripture has to do with a tiny word that appears over and over throughout our Bibles, the word you. In English, the word you can be both singular and plural. If we want to emphasize the plural, we can say something like you all or you guys, but we don't have to. Biblical Greek, on the other hand, could differentiate between you, singular, and you, plural. But when that Greek is translated into our English Bibles, it's just you. It's up to the reader to determine if the author meant a singular you or a plural you. Because we are individualists, we are hardwired to assume that the singular you is intended but because the authors and original audiences of Scripture had a collectivist mindset, this is almost never the case. With the exception of direct statements and narrative passages, almost every you in the Bible is a collective you or you all. The Bible is a we book, not a me book. 
But man, is it hard to get this through our individualist brains. I'm inclined to believe that our inability to see the collective tenor of scripture is at the root of the American impulse to see church as something we attend when it's convenient or, thanks to COVID, something we can just watch online. We often choose a church based on what we as individuals get out of it, which is why church websites read more like menus. Most American Christians rarely stop to consider the fact that in some mysterious way that we'll never fully understand, the Spirit of Christ is present in a group of gathered believers in a way that he is not present in the individual. This reality is easy for Christians in collectivist cultures to grasp, but we have to work for it, and we should. Richards and O'Brien offer two suggestions for overcoming our individualist assumptions that distort our interpretation of the Bible. First, they recommend reading fiction written by authors with a collectivist perspective. This will give you the chance to be immersed in a new point of view. They offer some recommendations in the back of their book. I love their second suggestion because it's something we can all start doing right away. No reading list required. It's this. Make a conscious effort to read you in biblical texts as plural. Don't worry if you get it wrong. You're trying to correct a bad habit, and it's okay to overcorrect at first. Take the time to tease out the implications of interpreting the text through an individualist lens and through a collective one. I've been intentionally doing this for a couple of years now, ever since I originally read this book, and it really has made a huge difference. And since I'm a Southern girl, changing all the yous to y'alls comes pretty naturally. <laughs> well, friends, that is it for this installment of Hermeneutics Tuesday. Next week, I'll hit the highlights of chapter five in Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. See you then.